When you hear the sermon, I think you're going to suspect there was collusion between Brother Bill Gilmeister and myself. <laughs> In the back of the bulletin, actually, too, by Seth Fuller. Uh, it's interesting how the three of those intersect this week, and at that intersection we find the glory of God. You know, when a thousand years ago, a couple thousand years ago, God told Ezekiel to, Son of man, ask the people of Israel, how, Israel, how shall we live in light of the circumstances that they were in? In the 1970s, Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, wrote a book, How Then Shall We Live?, in which he was addressing sort of the cultural situation that they were in and how they got there. Fifteen or twenty years ago, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy co-authored a book called How Now Shall We Live? Attempting to address those same big questions. The title of our sermon this morning, We Owe the World an Apology. And our text is in Peter's first letter, the third chapter, verses 13 through 18. Now, your bulletins say part one. There's only one part to this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the spirit but made alive. I'm sorry, put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Eloise Bouton was bare-breasted and painted in pro-choice slogans all over her body when in December 2013, she interrupted Christmas carols at Paris's famous Madeleine Church and protested the Catholic Church's teaching against abortion by simulating an abortion of Jesus. Wearing a crown of thorns to mock Jesus Christ and a blue veil to deride the Virgin Mary, Bouton carried pieces of ox livers to symbolize an aborted baby as she stood in front of the church altar and pretended to perform an abortion before urinating on the ground in front of the congregants. Written on Bouton's body was the French phrase 344 salop, which translates to 344th slut, in reference to an open letter of 343 French women who admitted to having an abortion in 1971. Initially, Eloise was convicted of an unlawful sexual display and was fined and sentenced to 30 days in prison for her offense. The French court upheld that conviction. However, the European Court of Human Rights overthrew the conviction, stating that the actions were not of a sexual nature, but actually a form of protected political protest and ordered that Mademoiselle Bouton be compensated nearly five times for, quote, moral damages, legal costs, and expenses, end quote. Back here in America, regarding the attempts by some state legislators to restrict puberty blockers and gender transition surgery treatment for minors, President Joe Biden said, quote, it's really important that we continue to speak out about the basic fundamental rights of all human beings. And the idea, the idea that was going on, you know, in some states, I won't get into the politics of it, but some states it's just, it's outrageous and I think it's immoral, end quote. Outrageous and immoral, that is, to restrict chemical castration, puberty, puberty blockers, and double mastectomies on teenage girls who have been groomed by twisted adults who need to justify their worldview 
by opposing it on minors, in some cases legally without parental consent. The Presbyterian Church USA, which is the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States, recently announced that it will be adding a non-binary genderqueer category to its annual report regarding church demographics. The United States Justice Department is presently prosecuting 11 individuals, charging them with a civil rights conspiracy based on allegations of them violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. In the meantime, as you all witnessed earlier this year, that same Justice Department refused to enforce a federal law that prohibits attempts to influence justices outside their homes, as many camped outside those justices' homes with threatening slogans and chants demanding they not reverse Roe v. Wade. That failure to act on the part of the Justice Department nearly cost Justice Kavanaugh his life. Research conducted by UNICEF in 2018 started at 3.1 million children die from undernutrition every year. That's 45% of children under five years old in developing nations. One in six children, or 100 million, in developing nations is underweight, and one in four of the world's children are stunted. Capitalism, demonstrably the most effective system for driving technical, medical, academic, and economic innovation, is also hijacked to perpetuate the financial disparity of grossly overpaid CEOs and boards of directors while depriving much of the labor force of a good, hard-earned wage. Throughout many of our major cities, camps of homeless, drug-addicted people live in a state of ruin, urinating and defecating in the streets and stressing municipal services. These conditions... These realities persist because sin has corrupted the image of God project that God put in place in the beginning. Humans are perverted. What Paul described as a crooked and perverse generation in his day still holds in ours. In his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Plantinga writes, Perversion is an ends and purposes disease. Most broadly understood, perversion is the turning of loyalty, energy, and desire away from God and God's project in the world. It is the diversion of construction materials for the city of God to side projects of our own, often accompanied by Jerry Bill's ideologies that seek to justify the diversion. End quote. Humans pervert what is good and right and just. It is for that reason that the church owes the world an apology. Before I elaborate and articulate that biblical assignment, let's sit and let's see how this is in the context of the Roman culture in which it was originally penned. After all, Peter wrote this letter from Rome, which Peter called Babylon in his final greetings. Babylon came to symbolize the world and the world system that is set against God and his Christ. In the Revelation, the great harlot sitting on the scarlet beast is called Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Peter is writing to exiles, the dispersion, metaphorically for those who are away from their homeland. Followers of Jesus are pilgrim people. We are not at home or ultimately comfortable in this world, neither are we conformable to it. Regarding sexual immorality in ancient Rome, Tim Challies writes, sexuality was about dominance, 
A real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. He would have sex with his slaves, whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters even while married. He would engage in pederasty, which is sex with children. Even rape was generally acceptable as long as he only raped people of a lower status. In the Roman world, a man's wife was often seen as beneath him and less than him. But a sexual relationship with another male, boy or man, represented a higher form of intellectual love and engagement. The legal penalty for adultery allowed the husband to rape the male offender and then, if he desired, to kill his wife. Under Augustus, it even became illegal for a man to forgive his wife. He was forced to divorce her. Abortion was widely accepted in that ancient setting. The instruments used for that were barbaric. Government corruption was widespread. That's the context in which this letter is written. So the writers of the New Testament letters insisted upon morals and virtues that bear witness to the image of God that is created anew in those whom Jesus redeems. The transformative effects of the gospel of grace began to show up in the empire. Worshiping Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar. Because the command was to worship Caesar as Lord. An entirely different sexual ethic. A respect for the governing authorities that is not coerced by the sword or threat of pain. Marital complementarianism rather than male domination. Better parenting. Treating slaves well. Charlie's observes, do you you see it? Christianity did not simply represent an alternative system of morality, but one that condemned the existing system. The system that was foundational to Roman identity and stability. Christians were outsiders. Christians were traitors. Christians were dangerous. Their brand of morality threatened to destabilize all of society. No wonder then that they were scorned and even persecuted. So the Christians to whom Peter is writing are suffering as a consequence of their living a righteous, gospel-shaped life. The text indicates that many were zealous for what is good, for what is righteous, and they're being slandered and reviled for it. Today is no different. I have outlined but a few samples in my introduction. There are Christian bakers. There are Christian florists losing their business and livelihood for their refusal to use their craft to endorse human lifestyle choices that despoil the image of God, according to Scripture. There are Christians and non-Christians being suspended from schools and positions because They will not address others with pronouns that contradict gender reality according to God's word. And and I won't point out who, but I see in, in the congregation this morning one weeping, and that is where our hearts should be when we stop and contemplate the world that we are in and the pain and the suffering that comes with being separated from God. It's hard not to be deeply affected when we see what's going on around us and to, and to stand contrary to that in the gospel. So our cultural context is right in line with that of the original audience. Peter wrote directly to them, but the teaching is for us today. Peter's first consolation is that no one can truly harm you. Who's there to harm you, he says. Think about it, he says. The the face of the Lord, if you go back to verse 12, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, but his eyes are on the righteous and he hears their prayers. So if your goal is peace with God and worshiping him and following Jesus as a disciple, you are indestructible in that objective. In other words, nothing can rob you of that even if you are oppressed. If your goal, on the other hand, is acceptance by the pop culture, 
and lots of likes on your Facebook page, then yes, you can be harmed because those things can be taken away from you. And they invariably will be. But no one plucks you from the Father's hand or from the hand of Jesus. They are one in keeping us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And and, and the rest of Romans 8. If we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are blessed because the nature of the blessing, peace with God, is such that nothing on earth can take it away. No amount of suffering can take it away. Nothing can take that away. In the same way, when Jesus spoke the way he spoke, and then he walked out, and the people wanted to throw him off the cliff, and he just walked in the midst of them because it wasn't his time yet. (laughs) We are not to be troubled by those who cannot harm us in the ultimate and only truly meaningful way. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There are powerful forces at work in the culture. Seeking to promote fear, fear in you and me, because fear is too often a powerful motivator to comply. I viewed a short clip of a black brother, self-described as a, quote, father of three beautiful black babies and a youth pastor, end quote. What a great way to be known. And his desire is to help children of all colors and creeds in the public education system. He said, quote, there is a new God in the land, And this God's name is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this God forces you to bow to it. And if you don't support this God, they will cancel you and label you as a homophobe, as a bigot, or even a white supremacist, end quote. Fear is not our response. Part of our response is to warn the unbelievers that Jesus will cancel them. If they persist in resisting his lordship, and stay tuned, I'm, I'm going to expound on that a bit. Here's the real antidote to the toxifying nature of modern culture and the foundation of a consistent gospel-colored life. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. There it is. Well, the New International Version puts it, but in your Christ, revere, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. The New American Standard But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The New Living Translation, instead you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. We are to to do something. What is it and how do we do it? We are to esteem Christ's Lordship as the regulating principle for all we think and do. That's what it means to set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. To sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. To esteem Christ's lordship as the regulating principle for all we think and do. Our worldview begins with all authority in heaven and earth is given unto Jesus. Sorry for that little feedback. How can we possibly maintain such a posture as this, given the madness that seems to prevail daily in our society? In, in our communities. How can we continue with all the pressures and the, co- and, and the, and the opposing messages? H- how do we do that given the culture that we are in? We need grace. We need repeated exposure to God's glory and His holiness. That's how. Paul taught, we... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So you see that. Seeing the glory of the Lord transforms us into the same image. So we need to continually sort of look to that Jesus and to that gospel. And we will be transformed into that same image. Jesus' holiness was unblemished. 
by neither the religious hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership nor the pagan practices of some of his audience in the same way that he could not touch a leper or touch a dead body and not be contaminated. He wasn't contaminated. And where do we uniquely encounter Christ's glory? Where do we uniquely, more than anywhere else, encounter the glory of God? It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in the gospel of God. Our small group is diving into Milton Vincent's little booklet, A Gospel Primer for Christians. And he writes, quote, As I habitually gaze upon the glory of the Lord revealed in the gospel, I can know that actual deposits of God's very glory are attaching themselves to my person and transforming me from one level of glory to another. End quote. Wow. That's this transformation is deep in abiding and unfading glory displays the glory of God to others. Being so very potent, as Vincent describes, it behooves us to know just what the gospel is. That would be an interesting exercise. For some reason, when asked to give the gospel or articulate it, many Christian people suddenly get nervous and struggle when there's no need for that. It's it's natural, I, I think, because we're dealing with something so... I mean, how do you explain... Even if you did the best you could to explain a beautiful sunset, you're still going to fall at capturing the absolute magnificence of that. You know, just to try to describe what it's like to be there at the birth of your children. You, I mean, words, they, they just, they can get us so far. Perhaps you might talk about God's wrath being satisfied in Jesus or going to heaven when you die. But is that the extent of the gospel? What is the gospel? It is the good news that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus bore the wrath of God, overcame the forces of sin that corrupt the image of God in human beings, and is king and lord of the new creation. That's the the fuller gospel. Now, you may come up with something similar, or you may highlight one aspect of that over another, but each of those ingredients is necessary if you are going to give a full explanation of the gospel. It isn't just about what happens when we're out of here. It's more than some glad morning, I'll fly away. It's more than that. That gospel, that good news is for here and now. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. Our culture, the ideologies, the worldviews, and philosophies that are in place are the product of distorted and dangerous people in whom sin has not been dealt with. I was recently struck by the profundity of Jeremiah 51.17, which I will read. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. See, the goldsmith is put to shame because his gift and skill do not glorify God. The images he makes are false. They represent something God does not approve. They contribute to a misunderstanding of who God is and what reality is. That is sin. N.T. Wright describes the problem. Quote, worshiping things other than the one true God and distorting our human behavior in consequence is the very essence of sin. The Greek word for sin means missing the target. The target is a wise, full human life of worship and stewardship. Idolatry and sin are, in the last analysis, a failure of responsibility. They constitute an insult and affront to the loving, wise creator God. If you are not worshiping God through the mediatorial atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that is you. You are an insult and an affront to the loving, wise creator himself. Stick around. That is why God forbade making images in the law of Moses, see? Because God already made images of God when he made humans. And what did humans do? In turn, they turned on God and turned themselves and their ideas into idols. I might note that in this sermon, I'm quoting more folks than I normally would. You know, the famous Welsh 
preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preacher and and Preaching, advises against quoting others. He says, insisting the congregation doesn't want to know what other people think. They want to hear what you think. Well, I think other people have some pretty cool things to say about God (laughs) and humanity. And so I hope that my brother Martin Lloyd-Jones, now part of that great cloud of witnesses gone before us, smiles at that. If not, we'll discuss it in the hereafter. (laughs) Always be prepared to give a defense. This is where the heart of the title of our sermon comes from. A reason for the hope that is in you. Well, what is that, and how do we do it? Well, the New Testament Greek word here is apologia. (laughs) The English translation is apology. We owe the world an apology. Now, you may not be familiar with the form of the term and are thinking, I need to tell the world I'm sorry. Well, sort of. (laughs) You're sorry they're not Christians. You're you're sorry they're not followers of of Jesus. But But here, it means to give a reason or a defense. It almost has a lawyerly sort of ring to it, doesn't it? You're to give reasons. You're to give a defense. And now, most often, this word in the New Testament is used to describe giving a reply to an accusation. Okay, So when you're accused of something, you give a reason or a defense. Very important. Our reply is one of reasons, providing evidence, defending a position in a meaningful, intelligible way. It is to articulate why you believe what you believe. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, is not what is in view here. Unless, of course, you're prepared to further expound on that, but to the average unbeliever, that sounds hokey and unserious. That's because it is a little hokey and unserious. Being prepared to give the world an apology is a byproduct of sanctifying or setting Christ apart as Lord in our heart our innermost being, our intellectual, our emotional, our spiritual core. When we do that, being able to give a defense, it's just a byproduct. It just just flows from that naturally. In the world, we are in a battle of oughts. O-U-G-H-T-S. We are in a battle of oughts. As Father of Jesus, we ought to yield to the lordship of Christ in all we do. And healthy Christians do that gladly. The world that is hostile to God says, you ought to think this way or that. You ought to accept our definition of what a human life is. You ought to accept our insistence that a woman has full autonomy over her body to do whatever she wants with it. You ought to accept our definition of what it means to be a male and a female. You ought to accept our definition of what justice is. You ought to accept the conclusions of leading medical journals that are funded by massively profitable pharmaceutical industries. You ought to accept our response to crime. You ought to comply with our doctor of, of, of public education. Yet, most who push those worldviews couldn't begin to give a decent explanation as to why we ought to submit to their oughts. The average person is not equipped to defend their position very well, and Christians must be quite different than that. Emoting is easy. After all, what are we defending? What are we giving reasons for? It's the hope that's in us. We're given a defense. We're given a reason. We're given an apology for the hope that is in us. Yeah, you have heard me say this before, and it bears repeating that hope is not a 50-50 proposition in the biblical understanding of that word. It's not as, as I hope the weather is nice next weekend or I hope to get that job. Our hope is an expectation filled with anticipation. Hope is our current response to a future guarantee. One that comes from the promises of God who cannot lie. Hope is the twin sister of faith. Do let me clarify that you may very well be born again. A genuine disciple of Jesus full of spiritual fruit, and at the same time not able to give reasons for the hope that is in you. 
Because our spiritual rebirth is, it's just that. It's spiritual, right? So we are a new creation. We have been united to Christ. But that condition is true whether we can specify why it is true or not. Okay? Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right? So it is, that is possible. Okay? So I don't want to shake anybody's faith as if to think, well, if I can't, you know, give some sort of an eloquent defense of my faith, I must not be a Christian. That's just not true. It just means that you need to perhaps learn some things and devote yourself to Christ. And in the process of that devotion, come to learn how to do the dance. So, even so, right, at the same time, we must understand that our minds are being renewed and the scripture compels us to not be conformed to the world. And this assumes we can use reason and logic in defense of the gospel. We are capable of offering a defense for the hope we have. In fact, we are to be prepared to give that apology. To always, the scripture says, always be prepared. Always be prepared. Well, how do we prepare? The same way we prepare for anything. This time of year, when I walk my 105-pound, half-black lab, half-Rottweiler, Bella, I prepare by lapping that reach, <clears throat> wrapping that leash around my hand five or six extra times and making sure that her pinch collar is good and snug. I do that because she has this sick obsession with blowing leaves. So the wind is always, she just wants to pounce on them. The wind is always blowing, dry, crunchy, frolicking leaves are everywhere. And she will leap right into oncoming traffic to get that leaf. Right? So I know what the conditions are. I know what her conduct is. I know what the people are texting while driving. I know that she is muscular and quite strong. I see a car coming and I tighten my drip and I get ready to jerk that leash hard and keep her from dog suicide. That is being prepared. That's the reason I do it. Now, our hope is not only a future hope, but a very present one. We have good reason to believe that God is recreating people, conforming them to the image of Christ, who is the image of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Redeemed people are people that are now conforming to what God had in mind when he gave humans dominion. Not domination, when he gave humans dominion over the world that he placed us in. We can represent God and God's way of redemption, God's purposes for human sexuality, God's concern for the poor and the oppressed, God's concern for the environment, God's concern for the purposes of government, Everything the world insists upon as policy, God has already set a policy for. We desire to honor God, do we not? Do you want to honor God? Over there in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Does our life, our decisions, our level of joy, our parenting, our marriages, our community involvement, our church life, do they express that hope? Because that's the hope we're defending. Can we examine ourselves as individuals in a bodily and, and happily report, yes, That is what I find. See, these people to whom Peter is writing are suffering because they bear the image of God. That is why they're ultimately suffering, okay? And they're entirely countercultural or are called to be so. The good they are to do, the righteousness they are to display to the world, flows from the hope that is woven into the warp and woof of the Christian heart, mind, and soul. God's concerns, God's policies for humankind and ours, and that will result in caring for the world we are presently in, as well as longing for the new heavens and the new earth. Someone said, don't tell me you want to see me in heaven if you do nothing to show you care about me here on earth. Our hope is the torch people see. It's the light amidst the crooked and perverse generation. 
And where is that hope going to take three-dimensional shape in the world if not in our response to the ways in which the world distorts the image of God in all its oughts? Now, the text assumes that the hope these Christians have is so clearly seen that it's driving the world to hurl accusation at the saints. The way they're living, the hope that they have is, is, is manifesting itself in the way that they're living in this culture in, 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 in such a way that unbelievers are seeing it and they're hurling accusations at them to revile them and to slander the Christian's good conduct. That's what the text says. Now, this is the linchpin upon which the door swings from our submission to Christ to our interaction in the world. The same hope that drives our desire for the return of Christ compels us to act in the world in the ways that will provoke the ire of the powers and principalities and of those whom those powers have blinded to the gospel and the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In Acts... The apostles are turning the world upside down. What we see here in the text is not an unbeliever saying, I want what you have, how do I get it? When they are demanding a reason for the hope that is in you, the setting is suffering and persecution. If it was a matter of people inquiring about your joy and your kindness, there would be no need for the exhortation that follows, which is to offer that defense, give those reasons with gentleness and respect. Right? If somebody were, to, were coming up to you and ask you, Boy, where do you get that joy and that kindness? You wouldn't need an exhortation to give an answer with gentleness and respect. I mean, what is your answer going to be? What do you mean, why do I have joy? I'm a follower of Jesus, you moron. You know? I mean, it's, it's the, nature of the, the nature of the exhortation tells us exactly what the nature of, of the particular thing is, right? No, they're carrying the torch of the Lord. And the society whom they attempt to illuminate with the light of that torch is accusing them of setting their world on fire. What I am saying is that our way of interacting with the world as God's redeemed image bearers is going to beget circumstances in which we have a golden opportunity to explain why we believe what we believe, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. In those circumstances, we had to give those reasons with gentleness and respect. Now, we're often tempted to be forcefully assertive overly harsh and disrespectful, which is why we're cautioned, right? You and I know full well, you know what your typical response is. I hear it when we talk to one another. I feel it in my own being when I read certain things or hear certain things, and I have an ungodly anger and an ungodly reaction to what I see going on at first. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are spiritual. We are, we are tearing down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. But that's what we're doing. We are casting, Paul says in Corinthians, we are casting down imaginations. We are defeating arguments. We are overcoming obstacles. We are overcoming objections to the sovereignty of God and every other high thing that exalts itself against true knowledge of God. He also, though, insists that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? So that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we see in our culture the things that are going on are being done by people, by and large, that have been captured and ensnared by the devil to do his will. That shouldn't come as a surprise. Employing that approach, we confront those dehumanizing worldviews with the way things are supposed to be in a properly ordered universe in which God is sovereign and Lord. And this takes some work and some time sometimes. The apologist Greg Coker wrote, quote, we may spend hours helping someone to carefully work through an issue without ever mentioning God, Jesus, or the Bible. <gasps> this doesn't mean we aren't advancing the kingdom. 
It is always a step in the right direction when we help others to think more carefully. If nothing else, it gives them the tools to assess the bigger pictures, uh, the bigger questions that eventually come up. We, we can sometimes talk about things in our Christian language that just we assume that the culture we're in understands. You're speaking in tongues to them. There's a lot of work that's got to be done sometime. We all want to be harvesters. We need to be planting seeds. Harvest will come in God's time. Not to say that there isn't the, the, the gospel track and all those other things that are simultaneously going. It's, it's not always this way, right? But the point is we are dealing with people that are being consistently trained in our culture to respond with emotion only. Right? Love requires us. Love requires us. Christian love requires us to take that, that patient approach and help People come to their senses. Upon hearing your position on abortion, for example, someone may accuse you, you just want to take away a woman's right to choose. You're dealing with a rebellious sinner at that point. But they don't know they're rebelling, in a sense. They haven't any skills yet to have a meaningful dialogue in most cases. I can tell just by that type of response. Anyone that says that, I have to excuse them as a temporary idiot. But God, by his spirit, will work through your love and through your arguments because unless God is in the work, the work won't be accomplished. Whether it's a gospel tract, giving them John 3.16, or working through a series of arguments, none of it works without the spirit of God. We get to learn to, to, learn to do when to do what. You might ask, what makes you think I want to take away a woman's right? I've got daughters. I've got a wife. Why would I want to take away a woman's right? I just ask that. Again, with gentleness and respect. <laughs> My wife is forever teaching me over and again. Although she hasn't had to say in a while, so I must be improving. Or she gave up. It's, you know, Pat, there's two ways to say something, right? There's your way <laughs> and the way that's going to actually be helpful. Or they might say, you're trying to force your religion on me. Right? What do you mean by force? What, what do you mean? And what, I mean, how am I, what am I doing that, that leads you to that? Like, why, where do you, what does that mean? I'm, I'm trying to force. My, you see how that's different than, well, here, here's this, this track. You study this and you'll see. See, that's just. You know, that's their way of demanding a reason for the hope that is in you, even if they don't call it that. They're demanding a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you see that? They are acting from the hope that is in them. They have set apart some supposed right or some person as Lord in their hearts, and they are acting according to their hope. Our goal, of course, is to get to the point where we might say, Right and wrong comes from somewhere. Where does that come from? Where is that moral imperative that you're saying? Where does that come from? Take a look at the way Paul interacted with the Epicureans and Stoics on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. So you have there with Epicureans and Stoics two belief systems that were basically worldviews that attempt to say this is how to be a fulfilled human. This is what it means to be a human being. Okay, And there's lots of those worldviews out there now. But in this particular instance, Paul is dealing with pagans that were known as in the classically trained schools of Epicureanism and Stoicism. And I won't get into what those are because, A, I don't know what they are, and, B, I'd bore, probably bore you with it. But to say that it's their worldview, that's the way they think the world ought to work. And so everything they think and do and say and every law they might have thought was good and then and every approach to whatever problem might have been then, they do that through the filter of their worldview, how they view the world, which is what we do. So Paul proceeds to tell them how humanity came about, who is sovereign, who gives us life and breath, how we live and move and have our being, that we are his offspring, even as some of your own poets did. See how we made contact with their culture and with their learning and with their thinking? See, Paul's making a classic apology or defense here. And when he's finished, he says, God is no longer overlooking such ignorance, though, 
He's no, he's no longer overlooking the ignorance that comes up with empty notions about who God is and what he is like. And he commands repentance because a day is coming in which Jesus will judge the world. That's what he said to them. So after he, he said this to these pagan people and he told them what God sort of is really like, he then goes on to give them a warning that says, look, you need to understand something. It's time for you to repent. It's time for you to change your mind about that. It's time for you to rethink this. And that is the case because the risen Jesus Christ is coming back as the appointed judge of the world. And so the response of those people over there in Acts um, 17.32, uh, he says, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising from the dead. The resurrection is a great thing to bring up at some point. But, but that's the main thing. But that's what we have. At some point, we want an opportunity to say, well, what do you think about the resurrection of Jesus? Let's just say that to an atheist. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson, what do you think about the resurrection of Jesus? They'd be like, you moron, what are you talking about, right? Well, what do you think about it? We, there are people that claim that Jesus was risen from the dead. What do you think about that, right? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went off from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Acts 17 is, I mean, Paul's experience here is just a, a classic way. It's the best example, I think, in all of Scripture of how to bear witness to the masses that are mostly irreligious but spiritual. Well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. How is that any different than the tomb, than the monument to the unknown God? Right? Isn't that just a way of saying, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? But you see, you've got to take time and find out why people are there. Why are they thinking the way? We're in a different time. We are not 2,000 years ago set and steeped in a rich, culturally religious milieu. We are not there. I've got news for you in case you don't know that. <laughs> we are no longer, so to speak, in a world that gives us freedom to use the kind of language we would prefer to use and the kind of things that we're most comfortable with and we have to learn how to translate that into talking to people in such a way that it resonates with them and gets them thinking in Acts 19 we find Paul has turned away many from idolatry and the silversmith is distraught because this will destroy their living and their false worship like big pharma and the money they multiply to these medical lunatics who want to mutilate children and shut down churches we have something to say about that we have something. We better well say it. What do you mean that you think there's no such thing as this or that? What do you mean you don't think there's such thing as a male or a female? What does that mean? Explain that. And, and, and why should I adopt that point of view other than under threat of your law? Right? Why should I adopt that word? Do you realize that that, that gender is already determined by God? And he, wants, he has something to say to you. He wants you to know about it. He wants you to learn about it so you'll be a more complete person. He created you for a reason. He wants you to know something. He's got something amazing. But I've got to tell you something else. He's sending Jesus to come back someday. And your persistence in this shows me, and it will show God on that day, that you'll continue to reject him. You see how one becomes a bridge to the other? I'm not saying that it's always easy, but it takes work and The examples are multiplied in Acts. Paul reasoned with the governor Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That's what he reasoned with them about. And Felix had a panic attack. Felix had an abject panic attack. It says Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And at the same time, he hoped the money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. You see, took some time with this. It's a different approach than the way he went and sort of went at the Pharisees, right? Because he had... He had the Old Testament. He had the scriptures to talk about. He was able to show them Jesus from the scriptures. But his approach here on, on Mars Hill and with Felix the governor is different. All he did was talk to him about righteousness and self-control. And somehow the spirit used that. And blammo, this dude gets all freaked out. The text also warns us about the dangers of our hypocrisy that we're to have a good conscience so that our defense, our apology comes from a pure gospel heart that bears the fruit of good behavior, shaming those who mis that shames those who mistreat us. 
Whether they admit it or not, people see your good conduct so much so that it may annoy them. And if it's God's will that we suffer for doing good, so be it. Better than suffering for doing evil, choose your suffering carefully. So let's review and wrap up. We must be prepared to reply to the inquiries and accusations of non-Christians. We do so because we are God's redeemed image bearers who represent his interests and proclaim his lordship in every realm of life. Our hope is for the fulfillment of all things when Christ returns and for God to be glorified here and now as we attempt to make straight the crooked and shine light in the darkness. This is our discipleship. We bear witness of that hope in the face of the secular culture's attempts to define sexuality, life, justice, equality, gender, and stewardship of the earth's abundant resources. That witness will will result in persecution and suffering for doing good and righteousness and seeking to infect the culture with God's holiness and glory. The gospel is the fullest expression of the holiness, love, glory, and wrath of God. We trust that as we represent God in the culture, he will draw others to himself as God gathers his elect from the four winds. And Jesus, he concludes, is our Final example. He is our great example. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, we can't atone for the sins of others, but our willingness to suffer in proclamation of the lordship of Christ through our cultural and societal interaction will lead some to Christ, and we will suffer for it. This is the debt of love and the apology we owe the world. May it please the Lord to fulfill our joy in the labor. Amen. And Lord, we thank you for your word, which can get us excited. And we thank you that we can imagine what an image-bearing, properly ordered universe looks like. We can see in the face of Christ Jesus the glory of God if we look hard and long enough. And we need spiritual empowerment We need to be reminded daily of the gospel, of its promises, its glories, the holiness of God contained therein, and practice in our own ways. Practice how we can sort of do this for those, Lord, that you empower to do it, while at the same time blessing the passing out of gospel tracts and Bible verses and all those things. But help us to be those also very careful people that know we are in a very foreign land. We are the dispersion. We are the pilgrims. Help us in this place to see where they have missed it altogether in the God-ordered way of things and to bring that order to do the best that we can, aided by your Spirit, and to be willing gladly to suffer as a consequence if that should be your will. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close our service.